Would you please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 20? Exodus chapter 20, we've been going this summer through the Ten Commandments, and today we reach number 10, the final one in this sort of mini-series that has taken our summer. And we've said over and over throughout this series that is as good and as helpful and as useful as it is for us to study the law of God, and we've mentioned several reasons why it's so good for us. Nevertheless, there is always some hidden danger, right? We have acknowledged this, the danger of beginning to trust too much in our own obedience and thinking that because God has given us the law, therefore our obedience is what gains his favor and what earns us our standing before God. And so we've guarded against that. And as, as I thought about that again this week, I thought of a story that comes from John Bunyan in the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you will be familiar with Pilgrim's Progress. It's Bunyan's allegory of the Christian life, in which you have the the main character, whose name is Christian, and in the story he leaves uh, the city of destruction where he lives, and when he is told by a man whose name is Evangelist, he is told of the way to salvation and eternal life, and he begins on this path, and uh, he has this burden on his back, and he says... Uh, the way he became aware of this great burden on his back was when he read the book of the law. That in reading that, it made him aware that he was carrying a great burden. And the only way to be rid of this burden that he bore was to follow the path that evangelists set him on, which began at the cross. And he would go, and there was a few things to get through, the slow of despond on his way, to get to the, the wicked gate beyond which lay the cross. And if you remember the story, when he gets to the cross, he sees this glorious sight and the burden simply falls from his shoulders and it rolls down the hill into the sepulcher, or the grave at the bottom of the hill. But before he gets to the cross, before he gets to that wicked gate, after he's left the city, he's on his way and he's met with some hardships. And he meets a a guy whose name is Worldly Wise Man. And Worldly Wise Man wants to give him some advice He says, yes, you are going on this way towards the everlasting city and you're going by the cross, but let me tell you, there are a lot of difficulties involved. He says, that is going to be a very hard route to travel. He says, I can tell you an easier way to be rid of your burden. He says, what you need to do is go this direction. Don't don't bother about the cross. You need to go this way. There's a great city this way. The name of the city is Moralism, and you will meet there a man whose name is Legality. And Mr. Legality in the city of moralism, he can help you. He has helped many people to be rid of their burdens. Well, Christian thinks, that sounds okay. I do want to be rid of my burden. The other way does sound kind of long. And so he begins to go towards the city of moralism, thinking that will be the easier way to rid himself of this burden that he carries. As he begins to get closer, though, he realizes that this city is on a very, very high hill. And he's going up this very steep road and he says there's this cliff that's sort of leaning over the road and he's getting very afraid. And then he says there's thunder and there's this lightning that is flashing from this hill. He says it's terrifying to try to walk up this hill. Well, the picture that John Bunyan is trying to paint of this hill with thunder and lightning leading to the city of moralism is that he's climbing Mount Sinai. 
that he has been directed by worldly wise men to say, you don't need to go to the cross to be rid of your sins. What you can do instead is go to Mount Sinai. If you will go to moralism, that is, if you will obey the law, if you will simply do what is right, then you can be rid of your burden. He says he gives him this additional way, and as he's getting very afraid, who does he meet? Well, he meets evangelist again. And the evangelist comes and the evangelist questions him. He says, why are you going this way? This is not where I told you to go. And he says, well, I met Mr. Worldly Wise Man who told me this was easier. He says, but are you now afraid? And he says, yes, I'm, I'm terribly afraid. And he directs him to go back. He tells him, you have to turn around. The law will never satisfy. It will not truly relieve you of your burden. See, that's the, that's the temptation that we face is to think that here is this law that God has given us. Certainly, if we simply obey it, we can be rid of the burden of sin. That was never the purpose of God's law. That was never the purpose. As we go through it, I certainly want to, like the evangelist, help you to be rid of the burden of sin that you carry. But that's not what the law does. The law will help you to see your sin, but it can't help you to be rid of your sin. That is the work of Christ. The law helps you be aware of your sin and the burden you carry, but it's only the work of Christ on the cross where you can be rid of the burden of sin that you carry. Now today, as we look at the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, that's particularly relevant. You break this command daily. I break this command daily. This is one of the hardest commands. What will we do? Well, I will certainly not send you to the town of morality. I won't tell you that you are a bad person because you covet, but if you can just stop, if you can stop coveting, if you can be a good person, then you will be okay. You'll soothe your conscience. Instead, we need to listen to the words of evangelist who tells us when you're aware of your sin, when you become cognizant that, yes, you bear this great burden and it's heavy and it bears you down, Flee to the cross. At the cross and at the cross alone can you be freed from the guilt and the burden of sin. It will fall from your shoulders. So let me read the text now with that introduction, knowing that the law makes us aware of sin so that we can flee to Christ. I want to read the passage. This will be my last time reading the whole Ten Commandments for us together, but I'm going to read the, the chapter from verse 1 through verse 21. Let me ask, if you're able, would you join me in standing today for the, hearing the reading of God's word? Exodus 20, starting in verse 1, God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness, where God was. Let's pray. Father, we, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that at just the right time you appeared to your people at Mount Sinai to give them your word, to reveal to them your law, to show to them the character of the God who had rescued them out of slavery, who had redeemed them from, their, uh, from death and from slavery, uh, from their bondage, who set them free, who gave them life, who brought them to himself. And, and Father, we pray that today, your word will be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path to guide us and direct us and to show us our Savior Jesus Christ graciously and mercifully taking our sins, bearing the punishment for them, and giving in return his own righteousness, a gift freely given that we might stand before you with great joy, with great confidence, with great thankfulness for all that you are for us and all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I want you to hear what Martin Luther had to say about the Tenth Commandment. He said this, This last commandment, then, is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright to people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended against the preceding commandments. That's what he says. The Tenth Commandment, then, it's not addressed to all those people out there who need to hear these things, all those wicked rogues. He says this is addressed precisely to the most upright, to all those who would consider themselves holy and good and righteous because they have heard the first nine commandments. And they say, all these I have kept from my youth. Well, this then, I believe, is the hardest commandment. In fact, here's what another commentator says about it. He says, covetousness, and this command against covetousness, is the most dangerous because it can assume so many respectable forms. Isn't that the way it is with covetousness? It's one of these respectable sins. It's not one of these dark, uh, scary sins. It's a respectable one, right? It's, it's one that everyone is guilty of. It's one that all of us struggle with. See, this is a command that goes straight to the heart. All of the commands, as we've said, going through them, they each speak to us at a heart 
level, but here is one that begins at the heart level. Right? This is not an external action that then goes to the heart. This begins at a heart level, and it speaks to your heart's attitude. In some ways, this command is almost just a repetition of the Eighth Command, isn't it? Thou shalt not steal. And two weeks ago, when we talked about the command not to steal, we had opportunity to talk about coveting and jealousy and contentment because those are the root sins in our hearts that, that eventually sprout and grow into stealing. And, and you don't break the Eighth Commandment against stealing unless first your heart at a deeper level has coveted, has been jealous of, of something that you desire. So this is similar, but, but more explicit, more direct. It speaks directly to our heart against the inward act of coveting, and it doesn't let anybody off the hook. Even if you've made it through nine commands without uh, feeling much conviction, without feeling that you've broken the law, I don't think any of us get through this one. It catches us. And, and that's what it's supposed to do. Right? That sense of conviction, that is a feature of God's law. That's not a bug in God's law. That's what its purpose is. It's not the only purpose for which God gave his law, but it's one of his purposes. It's one of his purposes to expose us as our sin, to make us aware that like Christian beginning his journey, we too carry a load of sin. We are burdened underneath it and we must find some way to be rid of our sin. This is what Romans 3 says when it speaks of the law. It says one of its purposes is so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And through this particular law, thou shalt not covet, we find knowledge of our sin. This is one that's meant to shine a floodlight onto our hearts, even the dark places, to show us what's there, to make us aware of these sinful notions and sinful feelings that exist there. God wants to bring conviction of sin not to make us feel bad, not to cause us to, to grovel in our sinfulness, but so that we will then gladly seek out Jesus. And we will go to the cross, and we will bow before Christ at the cross and seek salvation through him and through him alone. In fact, it's interesting to see that Paul mentions this, the 10th commandment, when he relates what, what, what could be possibly the story of his conversion in Romans 7. Right When he says, uh, he says in Romans 7, I was alive apart from the law until the commandment came, thou shalt not covet. Then sin revived and I died. Right? What he's saying there is, he, is I felt good about myself. I thought I was a good person until this commandment came, thou shalt not covet. And he said sin revived. That, that is, he was newly aware of the presence of sin in his life. And he says, I died. He, he it exposed him for who he was. He thought he had been pretty godly. He thought he was a pretty good person until he meditated on this command and he began to realize the depths of his sin and his soul was exposed. And he was deeply convinced of his sin and convicted of it and realized something that was true about him all along, but he hadn't realized it yet, that he was sinful all along. And finally, it caused him then to cry out to Jesus for help. Now, what is it about this command that is so convicting, that has this effect? Well, it's more uh, thorough, perhaps, than some of the recent ones. All of the, the last few commands have been very short. 
right? One very brief sentence, three, four, five words. This one, it actually goes through some detail, doesn't it? It gives examples. It helps to search out our hearts. It doesn't just say don't covet. It says here's some things you shouldn't covet, that you probably are. First, it says you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Now, what it means by that is that you shouldn't covet your neighbor's house. Isn't that still a pretty live category for us? To look at our neighbor's house and say, well, that's, that's pretty nice. That's bigger than my house. That's nicer than my house. That has more features than my house. That has a swimming pool. I would like that, right? Some houses are big. Some are new. Some are fancy. Some people own. Some people rent. It's easy to look at someone else's house and, and to say, you know, I'd really be a happy person. I'd have a lot of meaning in life if I lived in a house like that. But it can go beyond that. You know, a house is not just a house. It also is a status. Right? We look at them and we say, you know, we like that house, and it might not be the house itself as much as the status that the house reflects. That they, have, they are in a position where they can live in this house in that particular neighborhood with all these particular uh, new features that it has. It's easy to covet your neighbor's house. It also says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. All right, now it gets into the topic of relationships. This is a huge area of coveting. We can begin with just sort of the uh, you know, coveting of somebody's relationship status. You say, I'm, I'm single and ah, I really wish I was married. I'm married, I really wish I was single. I don't have kids, I really wish I had kids. My life would be full. Right? I'd be complete. I'd finally be an entire person if fill in the blank. But it's not just that. Sometimes it's actually coveting a different person's spouse. That's what it says. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. See, we all know if you've been married and lived with your spouse for, I don't know, more than a couple days, more than a couple minutes, you've probably realized that they're not a perfect roommate. Right? They're, they're not a perfect person. They, they come with flaws. They come with some uh, built-in annoyances that make them hard to live with. Maybe they don't put the cat back on the toothpaste when they're done with it. And then you see someone else's spouse who does put the cat back on the toothpaste and you think, ah, oh, if only my life would be so much better. Right? This is what I'll do today. I give the silly example. I'll let you fill in the blanks with whatever it is that your heart struggles with. But the command says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's male servant or female servant, his ox or his donkey. In the culture of that day, that, that probably stood for things like their wealth, their possessions. That probably stood for their status. Right? What they had acquired in life, what they had been able to uh, attain for themselves. It probably stood for their comfort features, their gadgets, their labor-saving devices. Maybe it even stood for uh, you know, job promotions, that they'd been able to acquire this much stuff, that they had gotten raises, their, their salary, their respect, their esteem, all of which would have been reflected in the number of male servants and female servants and oxen and donkeys that the person had acquired. All of these 
Are they not things that we still struggle not to covet? Maybe it's experiences. We covet another person's vacations or trips or their entertainments that they regularly are able to indulge in. This is a a fill-in-the-blank commandment. And however many examples I could list, the reality is that probably as soon as we begin to talk about something like coveting, your heart immediately fills in that blank. Because you have something in your life that, that you desire, that you covet from others. And I don't have to list them all for you to be able to fill in that blank of what your heart and your mind struggle with the most. So how do we stop? How do we stop? I want to give three steps to stopping our coveting. First, examine your prayer life. Second, replace your idolatries. And third, seek and find true life. So the first thing to do is to examine your prayer life because your prayer life shows you where your treasure lies. Your prayer life shows you where your treasure lies. And a healthy relationship with stuff, or with relationships, or with promotions, with all these things, begins only in your heart. Learning to treasure that which matters. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to uh, Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30, uh, verses 8 and 9. I want to look at this prayer that's in Proverbs 30, and we mentioned this two weeks ago, talking about stealing, and I want to meditate on it a little bit more. This is the only prayer that is mentioned in the book of Proverbs, chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. Actually, it begins in in verse 7, and I'll read there. These are uh, Proverbs from Agur, son of Jacka. That's what we read in verse 1. But listen to this prayer. Proverbs chapter 30, starting verse 7. He says, speaking to the Lord, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, listen to what he prays. He prays, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? I wouldn't be surprised if many of us have prayed the first half of that prayer, right? Give me not poverty. But how many of us have prayed or ever even thought of possibly praying the second half? Lord, don't give me riches. Why would he do that? Well, that's how we see what this prayer is really about. Right? What is, what is the real desire of this man of God's heart that is driving this prayer? Well, he prays that he won't know poverty, but look at what he says. Um, he says, it's verse 9, or yeah, the end of verse 9, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And the reason he prays he won't have riches is the beginning of verse 9, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And so when he thinks of of poverty and the very real, no doubt, possibility that he would fall into poverty, his concern is not that he will go hungry. It's not that he will be uncomfortable. It's not that he won't be able to keep up with the Joneses and so be unrespected by his neighbors. His concern is that he will profane the name of the Lord by his conduct. 
And likewise, when he thinks of being rich, his first thought is not about the giddiness that he might feel or the comfort he would be able to experience or the way that he would be the, the uh, desire of all his neighbors. Right? His first thought is actually a concern about what those riches might do to the state of his heart. That they would tempt him to forget the Lord. That they would tempt him to become self-reliant. That they would tempt him to become proud. And if we're honest, isn't that a real temptation? We know that that is, that is a real possibility. So, so what's driving his prayer here in this chapter? It's, it's not creature comforts. It's not earthly joys. His prayer is being driven by a heart that treasures God above all things. And we see how much he loves the Lord simply by what he prays for. And his first thought in it is not, you know, may I, I gain these things, this stuff and this treasures, but rather, how would that affect my love for the Lord? And so his relationship with stuff is seen through the lens of putting God's glory first. And he's praying for that which would give him the most love for God. He's praying for that which would do his heart good. And he's recognizing that there are things in life that at first glance may seem very desirable, but upon second glance, he says, that would actually be bad for me to have. That would be bad for the state of my heart. That would cause me to become proud and self-reliant. He says, Lord, don't, don't give me that. Don't give me things that I want if they are bad for me in the long run. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. That's where he says, where your treasure is, there your heart where will be also. I think we could paraphrase and say something pretty similar and say, where your treasure is, there your prayers will go also. Right? Do our prayers not reflect something of the deeper state of our heart, what's truly precious to us, what we truly are seeking after and desiring? And we can examine those prayers and they reveal to us our heart. That can be a surprise sometimes. So first, examine your prayers. Second, Replace your idolatries. Replace your idolatries. Now, we're talking about coveting and the fight for contentment, right, so that our hearts are not coveting. So why do we talk about replacing idolatries? Well, take, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 3, verse 5. Paul makes a very interesting comment in this uh, verse. Colossians 3, 5. Listen to this. In Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And covetousness, which is idolatry. Here's Paul, and he's exhorting the believers here in Colossae to live in a way that is fitting for those who have been saved by Christ. That, that they have uh, been renewed in their hearts, they have put on... Christ, and he says they are now to live in a way that is befitting of Christians. It says you've died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. And because of that, you are to put on the new life. And part of that is putting off covetousness. And almost as this little parenthetical remark, he says, put off covetousness, which is idolatry. You know, he says the exact same thing almost in Ephesians chapter 5, when he's saying the same thing to the church in Ephesus, and it's in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, where he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, 
has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's twice he's made that same remark when he thinks of covetousness. He says, coveting is idolatry. Now, we don't usually think of coveting and idolatry in the same thought, do we? That's the first commandment and the tenth commandment, right? Coveting. And he says, actually what's happened in this, it seems different, but really all we've done is we've come full circle now because coveting is a form of idolatry, right? And again, don't we often, in our minds, we put coveting in a far different category. Don't we think of coveting and we think, again, this is one of these respectable sins, like worry or unthankfulness or prayerlessness or pride, anger, right? This is, this is not one of those really bad ones that God is really concerned about. This is one of these respectable sins that we allow ourselves to indulge in, but then we read what Paul says about it, and twice now he's said, you need to understand first that when you are coveting, that's idolatry, and second, he says, coveting is one of the reasons that the wrath of God is coming. He causes us to think a whole lot differently about coveting and probably about idolatry as well. That even in our coveting, that's not, you know, we're not bowing to a golden calf. He says, functionally, aren't we doing the same thing? Because think about what idolatry is. What is idolatry? Idolatry is, is essentially setting your heart on something besides God to find joy and life and significance, and meaning. And it's when your heart says to something, anything other than God, if, if I could have this, this thing, or this relationship, or this person, that's all I need, right? I, I, would, I would have so much happiness. True joy, true life with a capital L. Isn't that what we're doing when we are coveting? That is idolatry. Anytime you look to something or someone other than God and say, if only I had that, everything would be okay and I could be content. It's something other than God, it's coveting, and it's idolatry. I think this is why Paul says in 1 Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain. Why is that great gain? Again, do we think of contentment that way as as the final summit? That if we could get that, that would be great Gain. Well, I think he says it's great gain because here's the, the reality that, that contentment and or its opposite, coveting, is a great barometer of our heart's spiritual health. Our level of contentment and or coveting is a great barometer of our heart's spiritual health. Here's why. Because if you know the Lord, if you enjoy communion with the Lord, if you find true joy in him, one of the natural outflows of that is that you will have a contentment that spreads to other areas of life. Right? If, if you're walking with the Lord and find contentment in him, you will naturally ha- find that you have a contentment that is spreading to other areas of life. Why? If you are drinking from the fountain of life, your heart won't go chasing after all these other little puddles thinking, this is what I need. No, this is what I need. Your heart will be so content, so satisfied with the true fountain of life in Christ, it it won't be even touched by the possibility of gaining other little puddles or, or streams. But this is what happens if you're not regularly drinking at the fountain of life. 
and your heart is looking for something, something to give it life, something to give it meaning, something to give it just a sense of significance and contentment, of course your heart is going to search for something else. That's the way God has made us. He's made us so that we are meant to find life, to seek joy and, and happiness and contentment. And if we're not finding it in Christ, your heart will look other places. But if first you go to the fountain of life and, and your heart is just satiated with Christ and satisfied with him and says, yes, here is life and life abundant, then it's at rest. Your heart will be at rest. You're not, you're not coveting. You're not seeing these other things and saying, that, that, I need that. So the first strategy then of replacing your idols is simply this, go to the fountain of life. If you find that your heart is reaching out after all these things seeking for life, go to the fountain, go to the source. If your soul is thirsty, go to Christ. There's another counselor, David Paulison, he says, the most basic question we have to answer is this, has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust or delight, or preoccupation. He says, if you're always caught up dreaming about, about something else, and something other than, than Christ, and you're coveting, he says, that's a, a good sign then that, that your heart has gotten into full-blown coveting, and that's, that's idolatry. Let me give another illustration, other than the fountain. And it's, I was re- reading recently about the tamarisk tree, if you're familiar with the tamarisk tree, it's not native to California, but they're planted all over California. Uh, they're an invasive species, sort of, and they're very difficult to get rid of. In fact, if you cut one down, it simply grows again from the stump. And if you cut it down and then you grind the stump, it will grow again from the roots. And if you cut it down and you grind the stump and you do your best to pull out all the roots, you can never get them all. It's very difficult to, to get rid of a tamarisk tree once it is already established and growing in one place. What you can do, however, is you can cut it down, grind the stump away, and plant something else. And if you plant something else there, that that new thing that you have planted, before the tamarisk has a chance to sort of regenerate itself from the roots, the new plant will take up the space. And it will begin to take the nutrients out of the soil and use them for itself. And as it grows, it will not provide any opportunity for the tamarisk tree to come back. So what you have to do, if you have an undesirable tree that you want to get rid of, you can't just get rid of it. You have to replace it. You can't just get rid of it. You have to replace it. Idols are like that as well. And the things that your heart covets are like that as well. If you, ha- if you find, by conviction of the Spirit, that, that yes, you are a coveter, and you identify that in your life, which your heart desires as, as coveting, you can't just get rid of it. You have to replace it. Right? Because you can't just uh, say, okay, I'll stop. I'll just stop. Well, hearts don't work that way. It will come back, possibly stronger, or, or it will find something else to latch onto. What you need to do is to say, I will, I will cut down this covetousness, this idolatry, and I'll replace it with something. And, and you need to replace it, of course, with something better, something more desirable. That is, of course, you need to replace your idols with Christ. Is that not what Paul says when he says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Set your mind, that is, stop thinking so much and setting your heart on these earthly things that you're coveting. Set your mind on things above. Begin to think of Christ. 
seek the things which are above where Christ is. He says, put off the old man and at the same time be putting on the new man because you have to replace it with something. Your heart is discontent. That's why it's coveting. So you'll only stop coveting when you give your heart something even better. Replace the idols with Jesus. And what will happen? Your heart in time quickly will find Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is better. Jesus provides the joy, the life, and the meaning that you were hoping that coveting idol thing would give you. It never can, but Jesus can. So that's what we do. We examine our prayer life, we replace our idols, and third, we look and we find real life in Christ. We look and we find real life in Christ. I think the most important thing about our coveting is to recognize that coveting has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has nothing to do with what you do or do not own already or who you're in a relationship with or what kind of vacation you're able to take. It has everything to do with Jesus and the state of your heart. As counterintuitive as it may seem, our problems with coveting have nothing to do with possessions. It has everything to do with our heart because apart from Christ, everyone is going to be discontent. Everyone is going to be coveting. No matter how much you already have, I once saw a little cartoon and it showed a a little poor student who was walking with a very heavy backpack and he was looking at this guy who was riding a bike and he had this little thought bubble and it said, ah, I wish I had a bike. Well, then the next one showed this guy on a bike and he was looking at a guy in a car. His little thought bubble said, I wish I had a car. And then the guy in the car was seeing somebody else with an even nicer car. I wish I had a nicer car. Right? It's not a matter of what you have or don't have. It's a matter of your heart. Even the wealthiest people in the world are discontent Famously, uh, billionaire Nelson Rockefeller was once asked, how much would it take to make him happy? You know what he said? Just a little more. Isn't that always the answer? He was a billionaire. Just a little more. And perhaps the most amazing discontent person I can think of is Adam and Eve. Think of Adam and Eve. They literally lived in paradise. They enjoyed a relationship between them uninterrupted by sin. They literally walked with God in the cool of the day and enjoyed communion with him regularly. And yet Satan came and he played on their discontent. Has God God really said you can't eat from that tree? And they, they bought the lie. They were sucked in. In this sense... I think we have to learn to see the 10th commandment against coveting as truly being one of God's most gracious commands because it is truly what our heart needs the most to learn how to live without coveting to understand that coveting and the desire for stuff is only going to rot away your heart from the inside it will never give you the peace that it promises it will never give you the joy that it promises were you to get every single one of the things you covet you'd still be miserable you'd still say just a little more I just covet one more thing. So he says to us graciously and lovingly, he says, don't do it. Don't play that game. Don't be caught in the trap of coveting, which is idolatry, by the way, and will never satisfy your heart. That's not the the answer. See, but but there's something that coveting is designed to tell us. And it's designed to tell us when we feel this, this coveting, when we sense our discontent, it's meant to tell us something powerful. That... Uh, that we desire happiness, we desire significance, life with a capital L, 
Yes, we do. That's the way God has made us. Those are good things. We, sh we should desire them. But we wrongly get sucked into the lie that those things can be given to us in possessions or in relationships, when in reality they come only in Christ. One last verse. Look at Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we'll stop here with what Jesus has to say. In Luke 12, verse 15. Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus is in the midst of a parable here about the rich fool, and he says, Luke 12, 15, Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus says, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Why then do you covet them? That's not life. That's not life. Life is only found in, in Jesus. Now look, if you're there in Luke 12, look down to verse 32. In the, in the, between these two verses, he's gone on about the rich fool, telling the people not to be anxious or to be worried about their possessions or their money or their clothing or what they're going to eat. All of these things, he says, God will take care of you. Now look at verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Here's the words of Jesus to our discontented, coveting little hearts. Fear not. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. See, isn't our heart's first objection when we hear this command, don't covet? Our first objection is, well, how am I supposed to not covet? I, I really want these things. Right? These things are, are awesome things. Am I just supposed to be happy with less? And the answer is no. You're not supposed to just convince yourself somehow that you can be happy with less. That's not the Christian answer. If anything, that's closer to a Buddhist answer. Right? The Christian answer is absolutely not. You are meant to be satisfied with so much more and Jesus' promises, fear not, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, to give you Christ, to lead you to the fountain of all true life and say, drink and drink freely that you might know life abundantly. And the problem with our coveting, it's not that we're discontent, it's that we're so easily satisfied by all the wrong things. He says, don't covet your neighbor's house. There's no true joy or happiness in that. And if you, if you ever got it, that would simply keep you from going to Christ. Don't covet what your neighbor has. That will not satisfy you. That will only cause your heart to miss the even greater gift that God gives us in Christ. He says the only solution to a coveting heart is to find joy and life in Christ. For your heart to be filled up so there's no more room for it to say, I need this or that to fill me up but to know the fullness of joy in Christ so that the things that once attracted your heart will completely lose their grip. They'll have no foothold. No ability to attract your attention or to, to cause you to desire them because your heart will simply be satisfied. It'll be at rest. It won't be looking around for the next great thing. It'll be at peace. And that's found in Christ and Him alone. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, our, our heart's desire then is that we might find life and life abundant. 
and find it in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that now your spirit will be at work in our hearts, taking the word of God and applying it to our hearts and pressing it on us, Lord, that we might sense at once the burden of sin that we carry and may we go to Christ and find in him relief, forgiveness, joy, and life. May Christ be glorified through the ways that we interpret and apply and keep this portion of your word this week. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.